so, if you'll turn to Daniel 3, we're going to find out, aren't you glad that we don't have anybody yet saying, hey, you need to worship this statue, this image that I'm going to set up. And uh, by the way, if you don't, your life is over. I mean, now as Christians, we would continue, of course, to give ourselves to the Lord, trust Him, but that may be how our life ends, too. I mean, that's what Daniel's three friends thought. So let's, let's look at this and see where we go from here. But before we get into the actual text, I just want to put a couple of things up here. So between chapter, as I mentioned in the introduction, everything in Daniel is not necessarily chronological. We talk about it. So what I'd like us to do is keep in mind, we finished chapter 2, but between chapters 2 and 7, there are four events that are connected to the first and second world kingdoms of Babylon and Medo-Persia. And those events are put here for a reason in the text. They reveal the attempts of the rulers of the known world to force true believers in God to pray to idols and false gods. That's what one of the things they did. These events also show the failure of these attempts, specifically in chapters 3, which we're going to get into tonight, and chapter 6. And then how rulers were brought low under God's judgments in spite of boasting of their own power. Now, it's really fascinating because I know you know Daniel enough to remember that Nebuchadnezzar goes through some interesting situations. And those situations occurred because of his arrogance and his hubris. But it is fascinating the way Nebuchadnezzar finally responds to those situations. And then if we look at his grandson, Belshazzar, Belshazzar, excuse me, when we look at him, which we'll get to eventually, he goes through um, a, a bit of a trial where God basically judges him because of his own boasting. And remember, they were drinking uh, from the, the vessels and the cups that were in God's house from the Jewish uh, temple. But Belteshazzar did not pass that test. Mm -hmm. But Nebuchadnezzar did. And it's fascinating the way Nebuchadnezzar's life was changed, but his grandson's wasn't. So it's, it's kind of fascinating. Anyway, those are some of the things that we need to keep in mind. So there are four events between chapters 2 and 7, and some of the events appear in chapters 3 and 6, and other times, in spite of boasting of their own power, they are judged these rulers. And that's in chapter 4 and 5. So we'll keep that in mind as we go through here. So in the first chapter, just to recap, of Daniel, heathen customs were judged. Heathen customs. And what, you remember what those were? Daniel was told, okay, uh, you're going to be part of this select group of young men who are going to be trained for about three years, and you're going to be eating this food, you're going to be learning this stuff, and you're basically going to be in seminary, school. And the heathen custom was to eat all the foods dedicated to the idols, and to drink the wine and the strong Etc. Well, that was that, those are heathen customs. So we learn about that in the first chapter, and Daniel and his friends passed that test 
with flying colors, but it was not easy for them. I mean, imagine you're talking to a king, as we talked about, who had the power to take your life from you just like that. Didn't need a jury or a judge. He was the judge and the jury. In the second chapter, he then philosophy was judged. And in the third chapter, he then pride was judged. And I, I got that quote from J. Vernon McGee. If you're familiar with him, you know how readable his uh, commentaries are. Now it's possible when we get into this text here, which we'll do in just a minute, it's possible that Nebuchadnezzar got the idea for this statue that he had built. He got this idea possibly from the dream he had. And interestingly, Nebuchadnezzar did not take to heart God's sovereignty, even though he voiced it verbally. I mean, when, when Daniel was able to explain to him the dream he had and then give him the meaning of it, Nebuchadnezzar was very impressed, recall? And so he, he understood this is, oh, this God is sovereign. He is powerful. Anybody who talks against Daniel's God is going to have me to deal with. And yet, and yet, look at what he does. He turns around and he goes, hey, I got an idea. I'm going to build a huge image and I'm going to make people worship it. So Nebuchadnezzar really didn't understand what God's sovereignty meant. He thought it was a power, something high to be esteemed. But he didn't feel, I don't think he felt like he came underneath it. All right. Let's look at the text. Starting with verse 1 of Daniel 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide, and he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps the prefects, the governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that the King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before it. i, I got to make something. It, it's always fascinating to me when Scripture will say something like this. He then summoned the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and they list that again. And then... This one. So the satraps, the prefects, the others. It, it's, it's just fascinating to me the way God's Word does that. Instead of just saying something like, so they all came and they did this. They repeated again. And that's for our benefit. So that's why God does that. So here they are, standing before it. They're all waiting. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship will immediately... Wait, sorry, I lost my place. You must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, 
As soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations, now notice that, all the nations and peoples of every language, important clue for us, fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. This comment right here, this phrase, all the nations and peoples of every language, keep that in mind because that's really important for us to understand what was going on in Babylon at that time. So, they were told what they needed to do. They said, if you don't do this, something bad is going to happen to you, namely your wife, because you'll be thrown into a blazing furnace. So, sure enough, as soon as they heard the sound of those musical instruments, everybody, from every language, every culture group connected with Babylon, fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had said. Okay. So what's really interesting here, this is what the text tells us. We don't know anything about this statue, except a few things. We know how tall it was, we know how wide it was, and we know what it was constructed of, which is gold. Apart from that, we don't know. We don't know what it really represented, we don't know what it looked like, and I have a sneaking suspicion it may not have mattered, although some commentators believe that in some way it represented Nebuchadnezzar, or at least his kingdom. But what's interesting is whatever it was supposed to represent, Nebuchadnezzar didn't realize his arrogance is what prompted this, which is why later on God had to deal with it, and he does deal with it. He chose his arrogance because he did not believe any other kingdom, you remember the dream, would follow his. In the dream, the head, just the head, was gold. And there would be coming, what, three kingdoms after his, not to mention the stone? Well, what he's saying here is what? No kingdom is going to come after me. No. I'm too mighty. I'm too great. I'm king of the world. So the image it tells us in the text was how big? 66 cubits, which basically comes to one foot less than 100 feet tall, and it's nine feet long. So it's roughly 10 stories tall. Wow. It was a huge image. And that much gold? Fascinating stuff. And as I said, we don't know what it was. We don't know what it looked like. They have no knowledge of this. They've not uncovered anything in archaeological digs or in antiquity that would help us understand what this thing looked like. But to give you an idea here, this is the Colossus of Rhodes. This is an actual statue from antiquity. It, um, it stood 105 feet, which was 70 cubits tall. And I'm sure you've seen pictures or drawings of this. Um, obviously, this is a computer-generated image of a statue over a real picture. But it stood straddling the entrance and exit to a shipping port. That actually existed, that statue. So, the one that Nebuchadnezzar made was only a few feet, what, six feet short. Yeah. But there it is. So we have some idea, some proof in antiquity 
that these statues actually did exist. So I'm sure to Nebuchadnezzar, it was a great source of pride, tremendous source of pride that represented him or his kingdom or the power that he wielded over all the earth. Because don't forget, when we say no kingdom, as far as those people were concerned, they were all that lived on the earth. They didn't know about anybody else. That was the whole population of the earth. So Nebuchadnezzar used this statue, some commentators believe, which is a really good point, that he used it as a test of his subjects' loyalty to him, but not just for that. For another reason, too. Babylonians, as I'm sure you know, were polytheists. They liked to worship as many gods as possible. If someone introduced them to a new one, they would go, oh, fine, yes, let's... And they would embrace that and add it to their gods they worshipped. As a matter of fact, that still occurs in places like India and other areas like that. They will take, um, even though a country may have, like Japan, is it Buddhism or Taoism? And, and yet, they have no problem taking another god, which is why sometimes those countries are so difficult for missionaries to get into and to start ministering to those people because they have to be taught that it's Jesus only, not Jesus plus those other gods you only worship. So the Babylonians, sorry? Okay, must have been my echo. The Babylonians were polytheists worshiping many gods. This was simply a representation of another god. And I think part of what he was trying to accomplish here, you'll notice way, way back in the text when it said, and all the peoples of all the cultures and all the languages. So what was he trying to do? What do you think? By introducing something like this, what may, what might Nebuchadnezzar have hoped to accomplish? To unite them all. He was hoping to unite them all. And um, I think there's a, a good argument to be made for that he was trying to accomplish that by having them focus on one thing which also represented Nebuchadnezzar. Now, if they wanted to continue worshiping their other gods, that's fine too. But they needed to embrace this one. And if they didn't embrace this one too, then they were being they were considered being absolutely disloyal to Nebuchadnezzar, not to mention the fact that they were not playing, playing ball like everybody else. So imagine being in that situation. Well, we don't have to imagine it. I mean, we have to imagine it, but we, we get a play-by-play -play here coming up soon with uh, the three young men. So there are three things from the creation of the statue by the king that I think sticks out to us. Nebuchadnezzar in doing this was in rebellion against God. God never told him to, to make this image. I think he just saw the image, and in his mind he saw it as being phenomenally masterful and thought, I can do that. I will do that. So he was in rebellion against God because God never told him to do that. In fact, God, if he had asked God, God would have said, no, no, you missed the point. His pride is on display, which is a form of self-deification. And we know where that got Satan. And it can get anybody, human being, who goes down that same path. We call them narcissists because they tend to love themselves. They can do no wrong. You ever, you ever know a person like that? 
they're never wrong about anything. And they will point that out to you. They will remind you. But these people, I don't know about you, but I've met some of them, and they're hard for me to deal with. They're really hard for me to deal with. I should talk with Mark sometime and ask him, without naming names, if he's ever had to deal with people like that in the church. Because people like that sometimes like to go to church. Because it gives them something else to control. So as a pastor, that's got to be hard. It seems Nebuchadnezzar was using the statue, as we mentioned, to create this kind of union, this unanimity among all the various people groups of Babylon, something everyone could rally around. They could still worship their own little gods, their own this, that, and the other thing. But when they all came together for this, that would help to make the people one. Where do we hear that before in Scripture from Genesis? Battle. I'm sorry? Battle. Yeah. Tower of Babel, Genesis 10 and 11. Tower of Babel, what was Nimrod trying to do? Unite the people with him as leader, of course, and his wife as, I don't know what, the religious counselor of the day. So here's Nebuchadnezzar, and he wants to unite the people under him. So that's what he was really trying to do. Now, in verse 2, just real quick, the various officials in Babylon, so that you know what they represent. Satraps are the highest political officer in the Babylonian kingdom. The administrators were subordinate to the satraps. So the satraps were the top dogs. They're like the people in Congress. And the administrators were like their congressional aides. The prefects and princes were the military chiefs. And the governors and chiefs, that's kind of self-explanatory, they're heads of certain areas of the province, but they also answered up the latter there too. And the counselor and judges, these are the high-ranking judges who made very important decisions. And the treasurers, well, they obviously were superintendents of treasury, and the magistrates were the sheriffs. So we're familiar with sheriff. Um, it takes me a while sometimes to think about it. There's one sheriff in Pike County, right? And the rest of them are deputies. Okay. So it's interesting because apparently there were more than one sheriff in the Babylonian kingdom. But you can look at this and see this is pretty organized. Yeah. From way back then, this is very organized. There's this, there's this trickle down of authority and, and everything is propped up underneath Nebuchadnezzar. And then in verses 4 to 7, that's where the herald cries aloud to the people, hey, to you it's commanded, O people's nation's language, that at the time you hear all this music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up, and whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And then they tried it out. <laughs> We're going to go through a test right now, everybody. Okay, play. Now what are you supposed to do, people? Bow and worship. Anyone not worshiping would be thrown in the fiery furnace. Now, in the ancient days, in antiquity, a lot of these kingdoms, they used these furnaces for brick making because it was the most convenient, easy way to make solid bricks. And it also served the dual purpose as an execution chamber. Nebuchadnezzar did not come up with this idea. It's what Asian kings and, and rulers did. We found other references 
in ancient antiquity and the writings and documentation that's been on earth that some kings were like, hey, all right, this guy doesn't obey. I'm putting it in English vernacular. Into the execution chamber he goes. Throw him into the furnace. That was so common, an easy way to kill somebody. And you had no mess afterwards. So it just took care of it. They were killed and cremated at the same time. It was very, very quick and uh, easy to deal with. Other documentation, as I mentioned, proves that they used it for executions. So execution would be carried out on anyone refusing to worship. I mean, it's fun. I, I don't mean to laugh at this, but you remember the pandemic where, you know, most stores were like, if you don't have a mask on, don't come in. And um, I wasn't much into wearing masks. So I remember one time Sylvia and I went into Lowe's and we didn't have our masks on. And I was nervous because I thought, well, you know, I'm breaking their policy. And then another guy walks down the row, another customer, and he looks at us. He looks at his son, he looks back at us, and then they both take off their masks. But imagine now, if that, if that policy on that store was, if you don't wear a mask, you'll be killed. Or arrested. That would be harder. Arrested would probably be more realistic, but that would be more difficult. But here, your very life hangs in the balance. You don't make the right decision. So if we go back to Revelation 13, you don't have to turn there, 13 through 18. During the tribulation, this is when people will be killed who don't take the mark of the beast and don't set, don't worship the image that the false prophet sets up. So in, here we are, way in the future, which hasn't happened yet when we get to Revelation 13. And it's really going all the way back to the past, redoing what Nebuchadnezzar did. So whoever happens to be alive during this time, it's not going to be an easy time. And of course, that's during the coming tribulation period. The issuing the mark of the beast is likely also a form of allegiance to the beast. And you know, it's funny. Over the last two years, people have just all kinds of ideas of what the mark of the beast could be. What is it? Oh, I think it's this. I think it's that. It has something to do with this. Digital implants or whatever. You know, and, and I guess I like to go back, God bless you, I like to go back to the idea that prophecy is best understood after it happens. It really is. I mean, we can sit here, and it's cool to talk about this stuff. It's, it's interesting to kind of discuss and gently debate things. But the bottom line is, it's best seen after it happens, and then we can go, oh, that's what that was. And that will probably happen. But understanding the possibilities, being willing to discuss it, makes us more alert and insightful and discerning, too. Not that we're trying to figure out the puzzle, but we're just aware. We're just aware. So I think, I think that that's healthy and helpful. Those who refused the mark and did not overtly worship the image in Revelation 13 would face death. So, verses 8 through 11. Daniel's friends disobey the king. Now we're getting to the meaty section of this. They're called deans who brought the charges. Let's look at those verses. 8 through 11. Therefore, at that certain, at that time, certain called deans came forward and accused the Jews. They spoke and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. Or however oily they said it to him. You, O king, 
have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery in symphony with all kinds of music shall fall down and worship the gold image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a burning fire furnace. So the first thing is they come up to him and they're like, oh, king, you know, they're just flowering him with praise. And to prove to him that they knew how important his decree was, they essentially almost give it back to him verbatim. See, yeah. king, we, we pay very, very close attention to everything you say. Here's what you said. Exactly. And then they're kind of reminding him about this as well. And you know, you kind of wonder, it's like, what is their problem? Well, they probably would have gained by having those three men executed because they wanted their positions. Yeah. Politics. <laughs> We've all faced that, haven't we, at work or whatever? I mean, it, it's just where it is because there are always going to be people who look at you and want what you have. So that's what they did. They wanted to step into those political positions because I'm sure the positions that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as well as Daniel had, were very important, highly powerful positions. So in the end, they would have profited somehow, whether financially or by gaining a new position or by both uh, being coming that much closer to King Nebuchadnezzar as counselor. So they figured, let's turn them in. So, since Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would not worship the image, they were basically saying, look, look, these guys are not loyal to you, king. You can't have them in your administration. They'll turn on you at a moment's notice. You can't trust them. Verse 12 says, There are certain Jews whom you have set on the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Let me stop there. Notice they said, you have set over the affairs. They were very high in his government. They had power. These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. Now, I got this quote from Charles Slender. In situations like this, no crime is greater the nonconformity. Yet, that is exactly what God asks of us when the things of the world are arrayed against the things of God. Mm -hmm. And I'll be quite frank with you. I like to consider myself a solid Christian. I've been one since I've been 13. And I'm 66 now. You know, but it's funny. You sit there and you go, that would still be difficult, depending on the situation. If I were in their shoes, it would be difficult. Mm -hmm. It would not be easy unless God enabled and empowered me to withstand it and not care, <clears throat> excuse me, about what happened to my life. But we see this happening every day in society. It's gotten worse and worse in society. We have no clue. That is an excellent question. That is a good question. Yeah, we have, we have no idea at all where he is and why he was not included. I simply think, like some commentators, maybe because it makes sense to me, but it still could be wrong, that he was out of the area. 
and not necessarily directly affected by this at, the, at this point? I don't know. Good question. So, these things happen in society. And Christians, I think because of what's taking place in society, Christians are going to become more obvious if they're solidly Christian and wanting to follow Christ at any cost. They will become obviously more non-conforming. And that is going to make us stand out more. And that's what happened with Shadrach, Meshach, and Ben. So the king's wise men, etc., accused the three Jews of being disloyal to the king. And by the way, the term Jews here in the original language is always used in this case as a pejorative. It's not a good thing. It's not. They weren't saying, oh, those good Jew men, Jewish men. No, they, it, was a, it was a slur. Those Jews who are not really part of Babylon, who were imported, but aren't obviously as good as us. So it's a pejorative. And there's the answer to your question. Oh, you can't see it. We have no idea why Daniel was not included here. No idea. And the other three. The three young men, they were in a high visible job. They were. And they were mingling. Yes. Telling people what to do. Yeah, so they were real obvious. And, and, and all these guys were. We can't, they couldn't stand it because they were accused right. and uh, they wanted their job. Well, sure, because these, these three young men were outsiders yep. brought in. So I was born in Babylon. My father was in Nabopolassar's uh, administration before his son Nebuchadnezzar took over. I should be way up there, yep. not Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. Yes, exactly. So, and Daniel's position may not have been as obvious to the people either. So, verses 13 and 14, let's look at those real quick. Then Nebuchadnezzar, <laughs> in rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up. So here's this guy. He became seriously angry as any king would, right? But he understood this as a personal affront to him. But notice though, even in his fury, the Bible uses the word of the New King James Version, fury. He was furious. Rage and fury, verse 13. But even in this fury, he calmed himself down. He was not an idiot. He calmed himself down and he provided an opportunity for the young men to prove their loyalty. They would have to do it in front of him. But he, did, he didn't say, oh, okay, they, the Chaldeans said you didn't do this into the furnace. He basically said to them, look, is this true? you haven't done this? He wants to give them an opportunity. And the three men reject Nebuchadnezzar's ultimatum in verse 15. In 16 it says this, now if you are ready at this time 
You hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? <laughs> now, I'm sure in that situation, I would probably be, humanly speaking, extremely nervous because I don't like pain. I just, I, pain and I don't get along. So I burned myself a little bit. It's never felt good. I cannot imagine tossing my entire body into a fiery furnace and, and how that would feel. But I, I, I know it would not feel good, at least for a few minutes until my skin, whatever. They absolutely had no need, though, to even explain to the king. This is, this is so fascinating. I mean, these people, these men, obviously, in verse 16, says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar. Notice they didn't say, O king, live forever. They said, O Nebuchadnezzar. They didn't even say, O King Nebuchadnezzar, but Nebuchadnezzar. We have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O King. That's an interesting statement. Even if they are thrown into the fiery furnace, they know that they will escape Nebuchadnezzar's hand. He will have no power over them. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. So they continued to refuse to worship the king's image. They explained that their God could absolutely, without doubt, save them from the fire. But if he didn't, they still refused. We are worshiping God, and him only will we serve. And that's what they did. Now, imagine facing death in a furnace. And maybe I should have just put, I like to think I would gladly enter the furnace of our Lord. But I'm not there yet. I have no idea. I would hope if that's what God intended for me, that he would give me the wherewithal, the grace, the strength to submit to it. But then we think of Peter, and sometimes I can relate. Mark says this too. He can relate to Peter. So can I. Remember Peter. Oh Lord, Lord, I'm never going to disown you. And what happened? We know what happened. Well, that's our humanness sneaking in. If you if you ever want to read some fascinating, fascinating death testimonies, um, Fox's Book of Martyrs. I was thinking the same thing. It's absolutely unbelievably fascinating. Just incident after incident after incident about what godly Christians went through. And some of them, it's fascinating, I remember I was reading one, I, I couldn't tell you the exact situation, but there was a guy who turned, who was a Christian, who turned in a fellow Christian because he wasn't doing something right. And uh, the fellow Christian he turned in was hauled into court and was, he was going to be executed. And as they're walking him to the place of execution, which I think was 
a pyre, a fire pyre, and he was going to be attached to the stake and burned to death. This Christian that turned him in walked with him and begged his forgiveness. And the Christian who was being led to his death extended it. And he goes, let's both die for our Lord. And both men went. So initially, I mean, it's, it's just fascinating when you read these testimonies. It's just actually, it's, it's not a thick, not a thin book either, but it's just fascinating. But anyway, I can't imagine what it would be like. I keep telling my wife, it's like, when I die, I'm just going to go to sleep one night and not wake up. That's what we all want, right? We just want to kind of slip away. I have no idea. 17 and 18. So what's interesting here is Nebuchadnezzar apparently did not believe God would save the three men. That's what he said at the end of verse 15. Who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Me! Yeah. I'm the great Nebuchadnezzar, man. What God can take you out of my hands? Well, he was going to find out. The men basically told the king politely, yet firmly, that God would answer him, Nebuchadnezzar, by what God chose to do. And of course we know, looking back on this as history, that God did this to do what? To change Nebuchadnezzar. Clearly the three young men loved Yahweh more than life itself. And honestly, that's, I would like that to be a description of my life. I would like to know that that's the way God sees me. And if I were ever in a situation like that, instead of trying to be concerned about my longevity or anything else, I would like to love God more than life itself and be willing to set life aside if that's what God chooses. And that's exactly where those three young men were. So, I come at it from this way, and you may disagree, you may think, whatever, but that's fine. I don't believe we should deliberately put ourselves into a situation where martyrdom could occur, but if one presents itself, I don't think we should run from it either. I'm, you know, with all the stuff that's going on in Israel now, I was reading a story just this morning of a, an elderly Jewish man when the Hamas attacked the kibbutzes and the little villages right on the border there. Well, the, the elderly Jewish man heard them coming because he could hear the shots, the gunshots, and the screams. He was in his house with a number of other family members, and he told them all to hide, get out of sight, stay quiet. And then he went out into the living room, and he just sat there, and he pretended he was asleep. And when the Hamas came in, they saw him and they shot him to death. And they thought he was the only one in the house. So they went to the next home. So in effect, I don't know what God thinks of this, but in effect, he was thinking not of himself, but of the people he could save. And it's just a fascinating story. All right, let's continue here. 
Oh, that's it. Yeah, that's it. I think. Yeah, that's it. Any questions, comments? So we will continue next time picking up from verse 19 and we may get to the end of the chapter. So I got a question. Yeah, I'll even try to answer it. Okay, thank you. And this is, this is nitpicking, but I just, okay. I mean, in my mind, the stories of hearing about this, this golden image was an image of Nebuchadnezzar, but it doesn't indicate that it was an image of Nebuchadnezzar. It just says an image of gold. It right. doesn't say it was his image. Right. Yes. Okay. So it could have been a cat or something. It could have been anything. Right. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. I agree with you 100%. That's not nitpicking. No, that's good. I think we always Is that what you're saying, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, just, I think we all, I always thought it was a, an image of him, but you're right. It doesn't say that. I did too, because I was reading into the text. And then when you start to break it down, you go, wait, this thing's 99 feet high and 9 feet wide. That, that could not represent a human being. Mm -hmm. So whatever it was represented something that Nebuchadnezzar wanted to put out there that people would see and recognize and understand was connected to him and his right. kingdom. Yeah. Anything else? More nitpicking. <laughs> We're all good? Oh, I thought you were going to say something, but that was kind of a yawn. Okay. <laughs> all right. <laughs> let's, uh, let's close it a word of prayer, and then we'll be on our way. Lord, we thank you so much that you are who you are. There's a lot we don't understand about you and never will, even throughout all eternity. We will never get to the end of who you are and your tremendous love and grace and forgiveness for us, but we are grateful. We thank you for your word and what it means for us, what it can mean for us, and the insight that we have because of it. This week, as we go our way, give us discernment. Help us not to be fearful of situations that may be coming up and that the news is going to talk about. The problem, the reality is you are in control of all of it. So help us to depend on you. Help us to come to grips with the fact that we are your witnesses here on earth and that's our job to do, Matthew. Uh, in Matthew 28 where we are supposed to go into all the world and be witnesses of your grace and your love. So help us to be gracious people, loving people, but help us to be, number one, sold out to you. And help us to love you more than life itself. And let go of those things that don't even matter. We thank you for the fact that you are with us, that you love us, you empower us with your indwelling Holy Spirit, and you guide us through the days. We do appreciate it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.